So this morning, um, I have the task and privilege of speaking on um, one of our matriarchs of faith, um, kind of beginning of the series, though Justin kicked us off a little bit last year, last week with Eve. Um, and I must admit, I'm feeling a little nervous this morning, so... Bear with me. Okay. So Sarai is later renamed Sarah, and I'll use both names interchangeably as needed. She's introduced in Genesis as the wife of Abram, who is later renamed Abraham. Her story spans across several chapters in the first half of Genesis and is intertwined with Abraham's story. And I must admit, I've struggled with what to do with Sarah's story. So much of um, this part of scripture is meant to be an origin story. Um, It's explaining how the Israelite people came to be and how they relate to other groups of people around them. So God makes a covenant with Abraham and uses Sarah to fulfill that covenant. Um, So, ultimately, her story and Abraham's story are about God's faithfulness in fulfilling God's promises. And in the middle of that overarching story, we get these little snapshots of Sarah and Abraham as people. So who really is Sarah? And what does she have to teach us as a woman playing a key role in the very beginnings of the faith? Those are the questions I wrestled with in preparing for this sermon. And there are a lot of parts of Sarah's story. um, And I encourage you to dig deeper afterwards because there's a lot more (laughs) than what I have time to go over. Um, But my wrestling kept drawing me to two in particular. Both take place before she was Sarah, the matriarch, and simply Sarai, Abram's wife. First introduced in chapter 11, Sarai is named Abram's wife and is given this description in verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. This inability to have children is a defining feature in Sarai's story and will come into play today in the sermon, um, but I won't be laboring on it much. But I wanted to go ahead and give that trigger warning. And I also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that this is a very real struggle for some of you. And if infertility has also been a part of your story, I just want you to know you're not alone here. Um, There are others in this church family. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) There are others in this church family who have been there and who would love to be a support to you if you want it. And I'm happy to be that point of connection for you if you're interested in that. So why is this the way Sarah... Sarai is introduced to the story. This detail in Genesis 11.30 interrupts a genealogy spanning way back to Noah 
and eventually leading us to Terah, father of Abram. In the next chapter, God enters the narrative again, calling Abram to leave his homeland and enter into a foreign land. God then promises to make Abram into a great nation. So Abraham go, Abram goes, taking Sarai with him. And the land that God takes him to is the land of Canaan. And God says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there it is, the why of Sarai's introduction. She is supposedly barren, and yet God is promising this land to Abram's offspring. We are being set up for the rest of the story. To introduce this information about Sarai further down the line would not offer the same intriguing narrative flow, and God's promise to Abram would not raise an eyebrow. So after God promises the land to Abram's descendants, Abram makes camp in the north part of the land of Canaan. Then in Genesis 12:10, we learn that a severe famine enters the land of Canaan and drives Abram and his family down south into Egypt to live for a while and wait out the famine. And here is where the first major part of Sarai's story begins. So I'm going to read starting in um, verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, Abram said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Just curious, how many of you are familiar with this part of Sarah's story? A few, okay. So this is actually the first of three other similar narratives in Genesis where a wife is called a sister in order to protect her husband. Um, one other one involves Sarah again in chapter 20, and then later Isaac's wife Rebecca in chapter 26. So it would seem to the reader that this practice of taking someone's wife who's passing through your land is just a usual practice of the time, and this is something normal for Abram to do, calling Sarai his sister. However, that's not necessarily the case, and it should come off a bit strange to the reader. We don't really know why Abram would have this fear entering Egypt specifically, but we do know that the Israelite people hearing this story much later on would have reason to suspect that a pharaoh in Egypt would be unkind to an immigrating person. Abram says that it is Sarai's beauty that makes him especially a target. 
and the story later confirmed his suspicions as Sarai is noted for her beauty and recommended to Pharaoh. How would the story have played out if Abram and Sarai had not lied about their marital status? We don't know. We also don't know what Sarai thought of this arrangement or how willing she was to participate in the lie. We only know that she did. So I want to show you a few images. Um, these are paintings illustrating Sarai and Abram in this scene um, as we kind of talk about this. So I'm going to show this first picture. So um, this is a picture by an Italian painter in the 19th century. It features Sarai and Abram sharing a hidden moment in the court of Pharaoh. You can kind of see them here and then the court's behind them. The intimacy of it makes it plain that they are not siblings. It illustrates what I think is often assumed in the story, that Sarai is an accomplice in the lie with Abram and allows herself to be taken into Pharaoh's house. We see her positioned above Abram, signifying the power she has here. After all, it is his life that's at stake if she chooses not to participate. But let me present a different perspective with a second image. So this second painting is by a French artist, also in the 19th century, and it shows Abram telling Sarai his great plan before they go into Egypt. And uh, what I love about this image is just how uninterested Sarai looks. <laughs> it's as if she doesn't share these same fears that he has. Um, I can kind of hear it like he's telling her and she's just kind of like, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and yet she's being roped into his plan. And this is a bit more how I read the passage, honestly. I, I don't assume Sarai's willing participation by her silence in the narrative. Considering her place in this story and in the ancient patriarchal systems in which it's taking place, what choice does she really have? Either way, she's at risk of being taken, according to Abram. But things stand to go very differently for Abram, and they do. Rather than losing his life, He's made rich with livestock and servants in exchange for his sister. And his wife, Sarai, is a threat to him as his wife. But as his sister, she is an asset. The truth is, we don't know which one of these two pictures of Sarai captures her accurately in the story. They're just images of someone's imagination, right? But we do know that Sarai is given to Pharaoh as a wife and enters his harem. This third painting, this is by the same artist as before, and I think it captures another important aspect of the story. Here we see Sarai, along with several other women, adorned and dressed to be judged by Pharaoh. Women were treated as property at the time, let's be honest. This is why Pharaoh responds the way he does to Abram when he finds out the truth, because he has unknowingly committed theft by taking Abram's wife. And he is punished for it with this illness that takes over his whole house. And this point is made even more clear in that second narrative I mentioned, in which Sarai is passed off as Abraham's sister in chapter 20. I don't have time to fully go over it, but in that passage, a major difference is that um, Sarah, she's Sarah at the time, 
does not actually enter the foreign king's house and become his wife. Rather, God warns the king in a dream um, that he has been lied to and that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And that king, Abimelech, is outraged and says to Abraham, why have you done this to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. He's outraged. He didn't mean to steal her. I think this just serves to further emphasize the lack of agency Sarai had in this whole thing. Reduced to her beauty and her value, she's just a pawn in these quarrels between men. In the end, Abram and Sarai are sent out, to e sent out of Egypt, though still with the many gifts Pharaoh paid as a dowry for Sarai, and with no harm coming to them. Okay, so let's fast forward a bit to chapter 16. Um, this is a part of Sarah's story you might be more familiar with. So I'm going to read, starting in the first verse here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agrees to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Hagar, uh, he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. So, in the beginning of this passage, we are told Hagar is an Egyptian slave. Most likely, she is one of the servants that Abraham acquired in Egypt when he gave Sarai to Pharaoh. And I can't help but draw some parallels between that story and this one. In Egypt, it is Abram that has a proposal for Sarai. But here, Sarai comes to Abram with her own scheme. Ten years have passed. Abram and Sarai are getting older, and we are reminded that she has yet to bear him a child. She blames God for not allowing her to have children, which, side note, was really just a common belief at the time if a woman's unable to conceive that some divine figure or other reason is causing it, right? So I would discourage anyone from interpreting this verse as anything more than what Sarai believes to be the reason for her lack of children. Thus far in the story, God has promised to multiply Abram's family, but has not yet said that Sarai would be the one to give him that lineage. We don't even know exactly how much she knows about this promise, but her concern for Abram not yet having a child would be justified either way, given the passing of 10 years without any movement on that front. Even without this promise of God's having someone, a son particularly, 
to carry on your name, land, and property was a vital thing in the ancient world. So she suggests what is essentially meant to be a sort of surrog surrogacy situation with Hagar. It's clear that Sarai still intends to be the matriarch of the family, even though the child would be Hagar's. You know, she says, perhaps I can build a family through her. And apparently, when I was like researching this, there are other instances of this kind of thing happening in um, other like monarchs and things like that. So. so we are told that Abram agrees and is compliant with the plan. But there's a third party involved here, Hagar. And uh, we don't know how willing she was to participate. And the dynamic of power is such that even if she was willing, her ability to consent is certainly in question. She's a slave living at the whim of her mistress. Can she really say no? Does this scene sound familiar? <laughs> it should. Hagar is put in a similar situation in this story as Sarah was in Egypt. Um, Sarai. And Sarai is the one putting her there now. Sarai, once a victim of the patriarchal systems at play, has now become a perpetrator. But it doesn't end there. Sarai further uses her place of power over Hagar to banish her to the wilderness when Hagar indicates her displeasure with the situation. I've got to be honest with y'all, as I was lingering in these passages preparing to preach on Sarah, I found myself rather not liking her. <laughs> but wait, this is one of the matriarchs of faith. This is a major woman in the Old Testament. Certainly I can portray her as some great heroine. That'd be nice. I wanted to show Sarah squashing the patriarchy, not using her own place within it to mistreat and use another woman. But isn't that just so real? None of us are the hero archetypes we hope to be. We are all both victims and perpetrators of the systems that hold us in place. And I say this as an educated, affluent white woman in America. As I peel back the layers of influence in my life, I realize all the little ways that I might be, hopefully unintentionally, <laughs> participating in the oppression of others. And at the same time, I find myself frustrated beyond belief that there are still, still things that are unequal and unjust for women in our country. And as a mother of daughters, that really makes me want to cry. Here's the thing, God still blesses Sarai, despite her sinful treatment of Hagar and how she misuses her position of power. God later confirms his promise to Abram in the covenant and changes his name to Abraham, and then confirms officially that Sarai will be the one to have this son that will carry on Abraham's lineage, and then renames her Sarah. I'd like to say this ends up being her redemption story, um, but 
Sarah goes on to further mistreat Hagar even after the birth of her son Isaac. But remember when I told you that this story ultimately is about God? It's about how God fulfills God's promises, no matter what. Our sin and the systematic sins we are also a part of will not stop God's redemption story. And it's important to note, God does not forget about Hagar in this story either. Rather, God seeks her out and makes sure that she and her son Ishmael are cared for as well. So, on that somewhat hopeful note, (laughs) I'd love for us to enter into a time of communion together. This is where God's redemption story comes to full fruition in the person of Jesus. The bread, his broken body, the wine, in our case, grape juice, the blood poured out. Jesus laid down his life and in doing so took on our sin, all of it, for our salvation. Sometimes when we think about sin, I think we think only about like our own actions that we can know of, but forget about how sin enters into the community as well through organizations and systems and works to oppress others. We who benefit from this oppression are not without fault. And so we must confess and receive forgiveness. And the good news is Jesus readily offers it here. So before we participate in communion today, I would love for us all to engage in a time of corporate confession and pardon, where we together acknowledge our sins, both active and passive, both personal and communal, and receive forgiveness. So this liturgy that I'm gonna use um, is used regularly in many churches as part of a communion service. Um, So when the words come on the screen, I would love for you to just say them along with me. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. So um, as we come to receive communion today, um, you're going to come out this side, and we have an usher that will show you. Come across the front and receive communion over here. We have a gluten-free option if you need that. So come and receive the forgiveness that we all need.